0: Year after year, God has slowly removed his restraining power and your sins are slowly growing worse. There was a day when you were in control, but no more. That is the wrath of divine abandonment.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we conclude Tom's series in Romans 1, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Throughout Romans 1, the Apostle Paul has emphasized that mankind, rather than honoring and praising the God of creation, is determined to willingly and willfully reject and oppose Him. Such a shocking response is common to all of humanity. No one is excluded. But the Bible provides a solution to this very problem, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, it is crucial and critical that we as Christians evangelize a lost and dying world, proclaiming to everyone that there is hope in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Let's join Tom Pennington right now with today's study on the Word Unleashed. God does
0: not, he cannot tolerate even the smallest sin. It's true. There are degrees of sin and guilt. I'm not lessening that reality. Some sins are worse than other sins. The Bible's clear about that. But understand this, God finds even the smallest sin we commit disgusting the things that we don't think too badly of, God finds repulsive and personally offensive because it is a sin against his character. Ultimately, all sins against him, right? You remember David. I mean, David's sin, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against his family. Frankly, he sinned against everybody in his life. But what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you, And you only have I sinned. Why? Because ultimately sin, all sin, all sin, every sin is an affront to the character of God. So understand then that God is always firmly opposed to evil in all its kinds and all its degrees. Second component of God's wrath is God is always personally displeased with sinners. You know, there's a lot of uh, sort of bad theology that seeps into Christian ease, Christian language. You know, one of those expressions is God hates sin but loves the sinner. Well, that's true. I would, I would argue that biblically it's more complicated than that. God hates sin, God hates the sinner, and God loves the sinner at the same time. And we're adding here God is angry. With the sinner. He is displeased with sinners. Turn back to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. David here is talking about an evil person who is attacking him. He's named in the, the heading of the psalm as Cush, a Benjamite. We don't know anything else about this man. We don't know the circumstances. But notice in response to this evil man, verse 6, David says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Now, as he thinks about God judging, God dealing with this wicked man in his life, notice what he says down in verse 11. God is a righteous judge... And a God who has indignation, who has wrath, who has anger against sinners every day. You understand, this is not foreign to God's person. This is something God experiences every day. Every day, He is displeased, He is angered against sinners. In Psalm 78, if you look there, Psalm 78 and verse 21, here God is talking about the response of Israel in the wilderness. And, of course, you know that most of Israel, according to Hebrews 4, in the wilderness, they weren't true believers in the true God. They were idolaters. They They didn't enter his rest, as is described there, the rest of salvation as well as the rest of the promised land. And here in Psalm 78 verse 21 it says the Lord heard their response to him and was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. God was angered with each one of them and their response to him. He was displeased. Ezra puts it this way in Ezra 8:22 The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. John the Apostle puts it this way in John 3.36... He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God literally is remaining, is abiding on him. God is always personally displeased with sinners. This is his daily response to those who are opposed to him. Thirdly, God's wrath means that God is always compelled to punish sinners, on account of their sins. Here, that emotional response, that emotional reaction, if we can describe it that way, breaks out in an actual response. He has to punish. You know, I love, and we all love that self-revelation of God in Exodus 34. You remember where he shields Moses in the rock and he proclaims his name before him? We love it when God says, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We love that. You know what the next phrase says? It says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That is as much a part of God's character as those things that we relish in and love. By the way, that's the riddle of the Old Testament. Do you see them put together? He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. How can both of those be true? The answer comes in the New Testament in the death of Christ. That's the answer to the riddle. But understand, God has to deal with sin. Now, when God deals with sin, when he punishes, when he exhibits this third component of his wrath, he does so in several specific ways. So, this brings us to another another aspect of our study of understanding God's wrath. Let's look at the manifestations of God's wrath. The manifestations of God's wrath. When God displays this anger, when he acts, when he punishes, he does so in several different ways. First of all, we could call it consequential wrath. Consequential wrath. The law of consequences. God created a system in his moral universe, an inviolable system of consequences for sinful choices. And when you and I sin and we experience the natural consequences of sin, that is a reminder to us of God's wrath against sin, against all human sin. Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom, God's way is personified as a woman crying out and saying, walk in my way, hear me, eat at my banquet. But the people refused. And wisdom says this at the end of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 30. They would not accept my counsel, they spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. In other words, they're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get the consequences of their choices. Paul puts it even more profoundly in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, when he writes, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, this shall he also reap. Listen, with every thought you think, with every word you speak, with every act you commit, you are sowing. And by an inviolable law of God's moral universe, you're going to reap the fruit of what you sow. It's going to happen. If you go out and in the field in back of your house or field near, near your house, you throw some corn, some seed that are related to corn, then you're going to go out in a few weeks and what are you going to find? Corn. And not some other vegetable. God says the same thing is true Morally if you spend your life sowing a certain kind of thought, a certain kind of action, you're going to reap that. Paul says, The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The bottom line is there are consequences built into God's moral universe. If you, for example, are sexually immoral... There may be a pregnancy or there may be a venereal disease. If you abuse alcohol, you may get cirrhosis of the liver. If you lie, you may get caught in your web of lies and face the destruction of your relationships. There are consequences built into the fabric of God's moral universe. And when we endure those consequences, it is a reminder that there is a God who has laid down a law and who is angered by our sin. Secondly, God manifests his wrath in civil punishment. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, Paul says something fascinating in the middle of his discussion about human government. Romans 13 verse 4, speaking of government, he says, and the rulers, It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. That's probably a reference to... To capital punishment you don 't wrap someone 's knuckles with a sword, you kill them. It does not bear the sword for nothing for it that is government and its justice system is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Some commentators believe this is government 's wrath, but in context we 've just been told that government is a minister of god it 's more likely that government is a minister of god 's wrath on the individual practicing evil. In other words, listen carefully, God displays his own anger towards sin and carries out his punishment of that sin by means even of the grossly imperfect justice systems carried out by flawed governments. Number three, God manifests his wrath in what we could call cataclysmic judgment. The Old Testament is littered with examples of this. From from the flood in Genesis six to nine, to Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of the cities of the plain in Genesis 18 and 19, to the, the destruction and captivity of the nation of Israel. And, of course, in the New Testament era, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. because the Jews did not receive their Messiah. They did not receive the time of their visitation, as he describes it. So God has brought and may still bring in the future cataclysmic judgment. Number four, God also demonstrates his wrath by eschatological judgment. That is the judgment that will come in the last days. Let me show you a couple examples. First of all, the judgment that unfolds during the tribulation period, during that that seven-year period in which God pours out his wrath. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, verse 15, here the sixth seal, you remember there there was a scroll, the title deed to the earth, it was sealed with these seals, and as Christ breaks each one, more judgments are are poured out on the earth. As the sixth seal is broken, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, slave and free man, in other words, everybody Irregardless or regardless of socioeconomic background, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the, here it is, wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand. Those seven years are characterized as the wrath of God, the anger of God. But it also comes with the second coming, when Christ returns. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Not only is there wrath during the tribulation, but there's wrath at the second coming. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What will he do? He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Wrath in the tribulation, wrath at the second coming. There's also wrath at what we call the great white throne judgment when all unbelievers will be judged at the end of the millennial period Turn back to Romans chapter 2, because this is what Paul's describing here. The final judgment of wicked men. And I read it to you a moment ago. Notice Romans 2 verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And when will you experience that? In the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Listen, don't you misunderstand When you, if you're not in Christ, when you stand before God, before Jesus himself, at the great white throne of judgment, it will be a day that can only be described as a day of God's anger. There will be no grace, no mercy, anger. So there's eschatological judgment. Number five, another manifestation of God's wrath is eternal hell. Again, we don't like to think about this. It's sobering, it's terrifying, but this is what Scripture describes. Turn to Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, John here describes the fate of a particular group of sinners, specifically those during the tribulation who are idolaters, who receive the mark of the beast and worship him. Notice how he describes them. This is a description not only of them, but of everyone who will face eternal hell. Verse 10 Revelation fourteen ten. "...he will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night." This is God's wrath. He must punish evil. It's not an angry outburst. It is the settled opposition of his nature. Now look at that list I've just given you. None of those is what Paul means in Romans chapter 1. There's one more kind of divine wrath. Let's call it divine abandonment. Divine abandonment. Now go back to Romans 1. This is what Paul has in mind in Romans 1. Notice verse 24. God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. This is divine abandonment, leaving the sinner to his sins. It's what's described in 2 Chronicles fifteen two, when the prophet goes out to see wicked king Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Turn to Psalm 81. Psalm 81 describes this very reality. Again, using the rebellious Israel in the wilderness. Psalm 81, verse 11. God says, but my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. God says, okay, they want to be stubborn, they want their sin, they can have it. That's exactly what Paul's describing in Romans chapter 1. It is the wrath of divine abandonment. Now, folks, most people don't like this topic. They want to deny it. But the wrath of God is real. This is what he's told us about himself. If you are not in Christ, understand this. No matter what sort of sentimental feelings you have about God, God says he is angry with you every day. He is fully opposed to every evil in your life, even the little ones. He is thoroughly displeased by every sinful attitude, by every evil by every sinful word, by every sinful act. He is angered by your refusal to honor His person. He is angered by your rejection of His law. He is angered by your refusing to believe the gospel of His Son. And He's revealing His anger against you today. You see it sometimes in the consequences you experience for your sin. But another often forgotten way that God has shown His anger against you is that year after year He has slowly removed His restraining power and your sins are slowly growing worse. They're growing in frequency. They're growing in their power and control over you. There was a day when you were in control, but no more. They're growing in kind. There are things that you are content to do now that when your sinful patterns began, you would never have considered doing. That is the wrath of divine abandonment. Now here's the good news. The wrath of abandonment doesn't have to be permanent. It's not necessarily God's permanently giving you over to your sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now I want you to notice... The sins listed here that appear in Romans 1. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's the the feminine side of the homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, that's the masculine side of the homosexual relationship, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Listen, the Corinthians, they live Romans 1. They were Romans 1, but God found them in his grace. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Listen, there's hope for you. And there's hope, by the way, for even that person in your life that you think God's given over to their sin, don't ever give up on them. As long as there's breath in their body, there's hope. It's important to understand that God's wrath is real. And there is only one way to escape the reality of God's wrath, and that is in Jesus Christ. I want to close our time by having you turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, notice verse 9. Paul's talking to believers much more than having now been justified, having been declared right with God by the blood of Christ, that is, by the sacrificial death of Christ. We're made right with God by the death of Christ. We will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul says, listen, if you're in Christ, you have nothing to worry about from the wrath of God. How does Jesus provide an escape from God's wrath? Here's the amazing thing. He does it by absorbing God's wrath on behalf of every person who would ever believe on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 describes it this way. It says, God publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation. The word propitiation means the satisfaction of his wrath. God displayed Jesus as the satisfaction of his wrath. Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God against the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. You can experience that today if you'll run from your sin to Christ. What if you're in Christ? What if you're a believer? Very quickly, let me give you three responses you ought to have. Number one, take your sin seriously. God obviously does. Don't you dare make light of any sin in your life. Don't tolerate any sin. Number two, share the gospel with others. Folks, this wrath we've talked about, it's what the people around you who are not in Christ are experiencing now and will experience even more furiously in the future. Open your mouth and warn them. Tell them the good news that God also loves them and has made a way for them to be reconciled to Him through His Son. And number three, thank God for the gospel. Because apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, what we have talked about is all you would have and all I would have to look forward to in the future but we will be rescued from His wrath through Jesus.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 14 of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will begin another series on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, before we end our time today... How about sharing how your study of and the preaching of this passage impacted your own life?
0: Well, the central theme of the passage we've been studying together is the wrath of God. As a preacher and a teacher of God's Word, at times I have to preach passages and themes that are challenging and even hard. Romans 1, of course, is one of those passages. But as I studied, I was reminded of the importance of taking my own sin seriously— and never allowing it to have a foothold in my own life and ministry. This passage also encouraged me to continue to be faithful in sharing the gospel, knowing that everyone I know is in need of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And lastly, this passage was a wonderful reminder of what I have been saved from, the wrath of God. My prayer is that this series on Romans 1 will encourage you in the very same ways. What a wonderful Savior
1: we have. Thanks, Tom.